Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Calling Tau City. Turn on your radio I know we had some words last time But that was so long ago I got your message It was a little harsh, you know It's still a little hard for me to hear Please take it slow Welcome to Starship Sofa Part of the District of Wonders Network Featuring tales to terrify And far-fetched fables Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm hooning, waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. I'm pointing them to the moon. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 627. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. Everyone's fine and dandy. Well, we have a cracking story today, but first, maybe it's me, maybe I'm just like looking to the past and just like a stuck in the mud and a grumpy owl thing, but two things, I'm not digging Altered Carbon, the second season of Altered Carbon, it just, that doesn't, it's not, not doing it for me, and the books were like, you know, a seminal, do you know what I mean, just like brutal, hard, just bit of twisted like oh you know what I mean angst where these are just like oh I'll I'll, I'll get more to that and I'm not digging Picard as well that's just and I'll tell you why straight away and it, I do it like you know unconsciously I, I don't know I'm doing it but I'll tap on you know I, I watch it say on on my phone or on and I skip you know like 15 seconds when like the tokens and that's a sign that it's not holding me interest I'm bored with it and I do that on both those episodes do you know I was so looking forward to Picard you know what I mean I just thought that was just gonna be perfect you know it's it's again it's I loved Next Generation absolutely loved it but I just think they've left it too long and Picard it's just tame it's so tame and Picard there's no like and obviously, he's an old, he's a lot older fella, you know what I mean? But the characters seem a little bit, everyone around him seems a little bit two-dimensional. 
and it, he just hasn't got the gravitas, and that's not, you know what I mean? It's just like, well, I guess it, it is the writing, you know what I mean? It's like I was always, you were kind of always, you know, it's Picard, it's 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 the man, and he doesn't come across as that, you know. It's just he's he's frail and he, he, he and he's trying to be this, you know, but it's I don't know, it's just not sitting right. It just seems a bit at, at a kind of a juxtapox, whatever you call it, you know, where it's just, there's just something not right, and I don't know if it's just like the actors themselves, you know, like you see, Picard's, you know what I mean, a lot older there now, and it's just, it just doesn't feel right, and I'm I'm finding all the time I'm, and I normally watch an episode, you know, if I watch an episode, I'll watch a, an episode straight through, but it's you know I stop it and then I go back and I watch it like a day later and I, and that's another sign and don't get us wrong it's not I'm loving Doctor Who you know the new Doctor Who Judy Fo- Judy Judy Foster Judy anyway uh, but this when again the, the the new episode or these last couple of episodes I've had on and I can't remember the title so I'm waffling here as well but the Cybermen I'm like bored the tears with Cybermen do you know what I mean I'm bored the tears with Daleks. And bought it to you as with Cybermen. Anything else? And I'll sit and watch it straight away. But, like, this one's, like, a running thing with Cybermen. These couple of episodes. And, like, it's just been done. And I know, you know, the fans of Doctor Who will love more Cybermen. You know what I mean? But I just love it when there's, like, new aliens and new, new... It's not like the old... It's just like, oh. And I get bored with that, so I'm... I'm not happy with Doctor Who. These I, I love it, but I'm not happy with this kind of this couple of run, um, episodes that are going on. But Picard's just not hitting with it, and Altered Carbon's just that one just hasn't got what I wanted. You know what I mean? When you read the books, you know you put the book down, and you think, "Oh my God, that was just like brutal." I mean, it's raw. You know what I mean? It's just everything on it is raw. But these shows are just, and obviously they've got to do it for the, you know, the, the ratings and everything like that, you know, so you can, it's it's kind of family friendly, but it just isn't. Where, you know, Expanse, probably the best bit of science fiction out there by a long shot, you know what I mean? And even the, the last season probably wasn't as good as, say, the other seasons, but by a long shot, Expanse is just pro, it just works for us. You know what I mean? Believable characters, situations that get out of hand, and you're, you're caught up in tension and you're caught up in, in the program. Where am I going with this, man? <laughs> I could have sat here, man. I think I've waffled there for bloody ages. Anyway. There you go. Starshipsover at gmail.com. Let us know. I'd be interested in how you kind of feel. Is it is it something that kind of... Do you like Expanse? Is, is Expanse? Is anything on the horizon that's got like a bit of kind of depth and a bit of grit to? Like I said, the last thing I, I loved was the... What was it? The... Oh, come on, come on, come on. I'll have to think about it. I'll tell you at the end. <laughs> oh I'll have to think, I can't remember. Anyway, shall we crack on? The main fiction, Burn Over by K.D. Julicher. This story first appeared in Intergalactic Medicine Show, June 2018. K.D. Julicher lives in Nevada where she collaborates with her husband on stories and children. 
She has a passion for bears, hats, and bug fixes. Her work has appeared in Writers of the Future, Deep Magic, and, I can say, Intergalactic Medicine Show. Now, this story is narrated by R.M. Ambrose. R.M. Ambrose is our assistant fiction editor and produced, sometimes producer narrator for our good selves Starship Silver. He has attended the Talos Toolbox in 2017 and is an affiliate member of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America. Later in 2020, he will relaunch and edit Vital, The Future of Healthcare, an anthology in which science fiction writers tackle the challenges of healthcare issues worldwide. In regards to this episode story, RM notes that a new piece of firefighting technology, Cal's Fire 747 Super Tanker, saved his home from the Palmer Fire of 2017. And when he was growing up, his grandma was a volunteer firefighter and emergency medical technician in Leicester, North Carolina. Wow, there you go, Ambrose, lad. So, oh, Ralph, I've got Ambrose. Ralph, wow. He can be reached at, and there's a couple of little links there. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Turnover by K.D. Julicher. I awake. Someone pulls a parachute off my head, and I see the world again. The briefing loads into my active memory. Where we are, why, weather reports, but none of it matters. All that matters is fire. The grass fire creeps along the hillside above us. I draw my Pulaski from my flank sheath. My four long metal fingers dark against the golden wood of the axe and hoe combination tool. The wildfire is in the dry cheek grass ahead of us, three-foot-high flames lapping along the ground. Dark smoke billows upward, blotting out the brilliant blue sky and the spiky granite teeth of the mountains fencing this remote valley. There's twenty of us, fifteen lean men, four wiry women, and me, the four-legged metal monstrosity they call NK-7 after the first three letters of the radio call sign assigned to my chassis. I've counted a hundred and forty days on fires since I first deployed. I think it's been three years, but I'm not sure. Something in my cybernetic brain doesn't do well at making memories. Facts, I know. Faces and names. How to fight fires. A simple tally of days on an incident I can recall. Bigger things like how often I've seen August burning red on the mountains, or as lost to me as the taste of bread, or the feel of a bed or human touch. The things I knew before I became a centaur-bodied cyborg, I remember them less every day. It should bother me. I want it to bother me. I want to care about where I am, what I do, anything but the aching emptiness inside of me. A hundred and forty days, maybe thirty fires, maybe four dozen. They all blend together, 
I activate, there is a fire. Nobody looks at me or speaks to me except to bark orders. I dig my line, the fire burns out, and we are left with ashes and destruction. The others go home to their families. I get turned off to wake up only at the next incident. Repeat for eternity. I am going to kill myself. It's not a visceral want. I don't have those anymore, or desires or hope either, just despair and emptiness. I cannot face this continued hellish existence in which I have no more volition than the Pulaski in my hand. Only, it's hard to destroy yourself when your body is military-grade hardware, when your systems are hardened against fire. I could force myself to walk into the flames and wait for the heat to worm its way into my delicate parts, except my sadistic designers made sure that I can feel pain. When you are burning a delicate sensing organ, whether that's a fleshy finger or a 10,000 haptic sensor, the brain needs to be told, Stop that! You're an idiot! This body is a better prison than my cell ever was. Up ahead is a stand of aspen, then another open patch, and then the hillside sprouts lodgepole pines like spine on a hedgehog. Once the fire reaches the tree line, it will be much harder to knock down. I don't think we have much hope of catching the fire before then. Not my place to make the decision. At the head of the line, Captain Ehring consults with Archer and Hill, the Sawyers, who unsling and gas up their chainsaws as they speak. They laugh and joke with each other. Did I used to do that? I don't remember, but I miss it. Ehring waves us over to him. He points to a boulder field about twenty yards upslope. That's our anchor point, he says to the rest of the team. Line starts there. We're going to come at the flames from the side. If the wind stays low, we may try to cut it off. But we start with the line here. We don't leave till the job's done. It makes good sense. A fire line here will protect the downhill slope. If the fire blows up, we have somewhere to retreat. We string out from the boulder field, the rangy line of lean firefighters and me, the monstrosity. The Sawyers are at the head of the line on the east side of the rock. They march ahead to the aspens and start cutting. Mendez and Jones follow and pull the branches and sections of skinny trunk away from where our line will go. Next, we come hacking away at the slope with the hoe head of our Pulaskis. Liu attacks the virgin dirt, scraping back the surface vegetation and gouging a two-inch line in the dirt. I know everyone's names, skills, length of service, everything and nothing that matters. In my memory, they are no more human than I am. Just data. Mendez is talking to Jones about his children. Did I know he had children? Things that don't matter to the job don't stick in my memory. Do I have children? I wish I cared. 
wish anything could penetrate my programming and let me feel again. I follow, my Pulaski scraping the ground. It's a precise motion, calculated to widen the line to a ditch nearly two feet across, but only a hand deep. I don't have to think about the work. It's programmed in along with the thousand other skills I need. I crab my way sideways along the hill, my four legs moving my metal centaur's body, watching the flames. We work our way closer to them till we're only a few yards away. I can see the heat radiating off. My vision goes into infrared. I know from experience that if I step into the flames, my sensors will transmit the pain straight to my brain. My arms scrape the Pulaski's hoe head along the ground and reveal the bare dirt beneath the cheatgrass or occasional bitter root and scrawny sagebrush. Gonzalez follows me, mopping up anything I missed and pushing the debris further away from the fire line. Erring, seeing how well we are moving, sends four of the rest of us ahead of the sawyers to push the line up closer to the head of the fire. So thin a line. Not even the span of one of my mechanical arms to stop a fire. And yet, it can, when almost nothing else will. Starve a fire, and it will die. Give it fuel and wind, and there's no stopping it. Like hope. Burns on the barest ground, but when it is gone, it is nothing but ash. This is my life now. The researchers came to me in my cell and offered me freedom. A reduced sentence and a chance to be part of something important. I jumped at the chance, of course. Six years, half my sentence taken off just for letting them make a copy of my mind. I laughed about it right after the first time I booted up in my chassis. Hell, the other guy is probably still laughing. Damn it. Captain Ehring walks the line behind us. He's got his radio out, held up to his ear, and he's talking into it. I keep working, but start scanning the frequencies, looking for which one he's on. Voices blossom in my head. Ehring. Anybody out here should have seen the smoke hours ago and headed out. Waste of time for me to send one of my crew, the woman on the other end. Governor Walls is worried for her son's safety. Put someone on it. I glance sideways, never losing my rhythm. The tool rises and falls without my conscious attention. Airing is swearing, but doesn't have the radio keyed down. Then he toggles the switch. Understood. This is my chance. I've got to have time to myself if I'm to find a way out of my misery. I step out of line. Sir, I say, I'll go. You were listening, he says. It's not a question, so I don't bother answering. Someone's missing. There may be a pair of kids somewhere in this vicinity. Hiking along the river. We're supposed to locate them, get them to safety. I sheathe my Pulaski. Erring watches me. 
His head tilts back to meet what he probably thinks of as my eyes. My head is just a platform for various sensor inputs and my speaker, because other humans expect my voice to come from the top and not my abdomen. My centaur's torso is designed to power my arms and protects my input console, the one airing or my maintenance crew can use to access my diagnostics and boot routines. All the critical parts are carried up in my abdomen, cradled like a fetus inside the bulk of me. My brain is in there, somewhere. A black box full of circuitry or synapses or who knows what. I nurture a dream of cutting in and ripping the box out like an ancient priest removing a steel-beating heart. But it's too well protected for me to reach. I'm the fastest in this terrain, I say the modulated tones issuing from my speaker giving no hint of my sudden interest. An hour or so alone, unsupervised, will surely be enough. I'll find them in time. Ehring hesitates, weighing his options. I am valuable on the fire line, able to do the work of several men. But by the same token, I can locate the hikers without needing to be rescued myself. Take a spare pack with you. I don't need it, I say. The packs hold water and protein bars and survival gear. My batteries are fully charged and will last for 72 hours before I need to plug in or swap out packs. Maintenance happens between fires while I'm offline. I wake up for a fire, fight through till containment. Then they pull the plug and take me off somewhere. I suspect there's a lot more happening while I'm out than I'll ever know. Sometimes there'll be a new set of programs added. Sometimes I see scars on my frame that I don't remember acquiring. I think there have been whole incidents removed from my memory. It's all part of my personal hell. My body is not my own. And I have doubts about my mind as well. For the hikers, if you find them. Aaron clarifies. Stay in touch. I'll call you on the same frequency you were just monitoring. If you see any hot spots, call it in. I assent, and Aaron turns back to his team, dismissing me without another word. I head downslope toward the river. My pace is easily double a man's. The noise of the fire dies off as I hike down the mountain meadow away from the burned-over area. We're a hundred miles out of Boise, and some chunk of national forest with trees and chipmunks and rocks and not much else. My legs adjust stride automatically to compensate for the uneven ground and the extreme slope. Automatic routines I don't have to think about. I toggle my rear camera once or twice to make sure no tendrils of flame have broken free to chase after me. But all I see of the fire is the smoke snaking skyward. It's pushed pretty fast. The wind must be picking up, and that's not good. I can't leave the rear camera on for long. Getting input from two opposite directions at once gives me a headache. That's something that frustrates the researchers. They say with the hardware I'm running, I ought to be able to cope with a 360-degree range of vision. One of the postdocs likes to accuse me of lying about it. But I'm not. Gives me a feeling of nausea. 
which is doubly annoying considering I don't have a stomach to be sick with. The mountain meadow is, no doubt, beautiful. All I see is fuel waiting for a spark. We fight fires in breathtaking locations, putting our lives and our labor on the line to prevent a few more acres being added to the ashes. I come to a stand of burned-over pines from a fire season or ten ago. The blackened trunks tower over my head. Half the trees in the stand are dead. They're bare black branches drooping at their sides. Others bear spiky green needles and clusters along their branches. Here and there a new sapling has sprouted. Long pole pines need fire to germinate. Their pine cones have resin that melts and releases the new seeds. The wildlands know how to live with fire. But we come along and mess with that. It's as unnatural as I am. An attempt to force a new technological order on the natural way of things. And just as futile. Sooner or later, the fire wins and we are left standing in the ashes. I reach the bottom of the slope and splash into the river. It's shallow here, racing along past rocks, frothing up at outcroppings, and so clear. My extremities record the temperature. Forty degrees, and that's at the height of summer. But I don't feel the cold, since it's no threat to my body. I splash along the riverbed. How am I supposed to find a pair of hikers in this vast wilderness? I could take this opportunity to lose myself. My batteries will last almost three days, long enough for me to get deep into the mountains, to find a hole and drop myself in it. Only, I'd have to remove my radio transponders first, and I've had no more luck with that than with removing my brain case. Besides, I have a secret worry that somehow my mind will stay active, even with all my inputs cut off. That sounds even worse than this miserable existence. The wind shifts, blowing smoke down from the fire. It settles in the ravine, shrouding me, dimming the sun and blurring the world beyond. I make my way along the river's edge. The rushing water is unnaturally loud in the gloom. I scan through the radio bands as I go, listening in on calls between Airing and the Fire Incident Commander, or between the Commander and other teams. It's easy to forget that there are other people working other fronts, that my team is just one of several trying to button the blaze up before it spreads. I hear something, not on the radio, but with my audio inputs. A harsh whistle, blowing groups of long and short. I tilt my head and try to locate the sound. It seems to come from upslope to the east, farther still from where I started. I splash across the river. The current is swift and several inches deep. It poses no threat to my four-legged wide stride. I consider radioing airing, but I haven't found anything yet. Besides, this is still my best opportunity yet. Maybe once I've found the lost hikers, inspiration will strike. Maybe 
I can call a chopper for them and arrange to fall out from a great height. But my designers will find the black box and reinstall me in a new chassis, and I'll have to try again. I start up the slope on the far side of the river. It's densely wooded. I weave past the lodgepole pines, weaving gently in the stiff breeze, crush small bushes underfoot, and wonder about the smoke. It seems too thick to have drifted over from our blaze. Is there another fire nearby? And how is it, in three years, I've never managed to effectively attempt self-termination? Am I really such a coward? Or have I tried dozens of times, only to have the memory removed? Or, and this thought strikes me for the first time, did the researchers who uploaded my brain implant an unconscious desire for self-preservation? I've thought of three different methods already today and ruled them out without even trying. The whistling starts again. It sounds more frantic than ever. They must have spotted the smoke rising nearby. I briefly wonder if they'll flee when they get a good sight of me. My metal body stands a good two feet taller than an average man. I have the posture and gait of a mechanical horse, a dark metal exoskeleton straight out of a nightmare. I reach the top, and the smoke clears enough for me to see the hikers. There's a kid on the ground cradling his ankle, and another blowing her whistle. She's looking directly away from me. The kid with the busted ankle raises his head. He sees me. His eyes go wide, and the pain in his face fades briefly to astonishment. Pat! Look out! The girl whirls, whistles still at her lips. She drops it and shrieks, shuffling back. Her foot hits a rock, and she trips, landing on her rear. I hold up a metal claw. I'm here to help! The young guy looks wary. What are you? Some sort of park ranger bot? I'm with the wildfire crew, I say. They call me NK-7. Let me guess. My mom sent you. He looks disgusted now. I hate that she's right again. She's never going to let me hear the end of it. Damn it. You're Governor Walls's son. I'm Adam. He grimaces and gets up, all his weight on his right leg. Pat gets up, too. They're a cute young couple. He's dark, almost as dark as me and tall enough he towers over the girl. She's pretty clearly the outdoorsy one. Her hiking shoes have scuff marks and mismatched laces. Her hat is worn and sun-bleached. Adam wears gear that looks like it just came off a rack at an upscale hiking store in Portland. Sorry I had to come up here, he says. Is the fire close? The smoke's awful. That's probably why your mom's sending Smokey here, Pat says. She drops her whistle which hangs from a lanyard around her neck, and approaches me, peering at my head. So, are you remote-operated, or what? No, I say. How badly are you hurt? He sprained it, Pat says. It's not broken. I look around. We're at the top of a ridge. The wooded land slopes away on both sides, gently enough to allow foot passage, but not ideal for landing a helicopter even assuming they can find a gap in the trees large enough. Get that patched up, and let's move. I remove the first aid pouch from my survival gear and toss it to them. The girl gets to work while I stand useless.
My hands are designed for the intense physical work of firefighting, not for healing. I check my internal GPS against the satellite map set I have downloaded. We're about five miles from the nearest forest road, probably closer to seven along whatever trail these two took coming in. It's also away from Erring and his crew. That gives me more time to make a decision about myself. Done, Pat says. All right, I say. I'll escort you back to the road. That's not necessary, Adam says. Yes, thank you, Pat says. She turns to Adam, glaring. I am not hauling your ass when your ankle gives out halfway. I've got my stick, he protests, leaning over and picking up a thin carbon fiber pole. It's got a rubber tip and an electric blue coating from the same place, no doubt, where he bought those fancy pants. We strike off down the side of the brush-covered hill. The path winds down through the straggling trees, veering here to cross a dry gully, dodging past a particularly large lodgepole pine. It's clear of the juniper and grasses that fill the space between pines, but the two hikers move much more slowly than I could. I take up the rear. Adam hobbles along ahead of me, leaning too much on his pole. What's that? Pat asks, halting. She points. The path curves around a huge granite boulder just ahead of us. I can't see past her. I step down through the brush beside the path, my feet finding purchase on the hillside, and circle to the front, rounding the boulder. A trail of smoke snakes skyward. I should have noticed it before, when we were on the ridge. As I watch, it thickens. It must be growing at a tremendous rate. I study it, my eyes automatically focusing and zooming as some subsystem kicks in without my trying. At the same time, I check my most recent cached satellite data. It's over an hour old. I have a satellite transponder built into my chassis somewhere, and a text link out. But not broadband. Satellite time is too expensive. Usually, I piggyback off the incident commander's comms, but I'm well out of range of Aring's gear. The intel might as well be a year old for all the good it does me. We stand overlooking a deep-walled valley. Rocky here, near at the top of the slope, trees thicker on the lower flanks. From the bottom, hidden behind the trees, I can hear the rush of water. The path skirts the edge of the valley for some way, presumably making a switchback somewhere up ahead, because I can see it again about fifty yards below us. The hill is more like a cliff here, though, and going straight down it would be impossible without ropes. It's high enough I might throw myself off and dash myself on the rocks below. Only I have promised to see the kids back to safety. Without me, they cannot radio for help, and the thick smoke is rising up from the valley to the north. Where's the fire? Pat asks. How far away? I am searching for her answers even as I speak. From the way it's rising, not more than half a mile. The wind is pushing it toward us. Should we go back? Adam asks. I toggle my rear camera and swivel my neck through its full range of motion, gathering input from all sides. It's disorienting, and the two hikers stare at me, but I quickly stitch together the video streams. There's a smoke trail uphill, too. I've got the most advanced fire protection algorithms baked into my brain. I can't follow how they work. All I do is call them up, provide them what I know, 
and the results are spat back out to me faster than the hikers can blink. There's fire on this side of the stream, I say. It'll be traveling at us, and upslope faster than down. Our best chance is to get to the river and try to put it between us and the front. I don't know how fast Adam can travel, Pat says. He can ride, I say. I'm not built for it, despite my looks. But with Pat's help, Adam climbs up onto my back and clings to my torso. We start off down the path, much faster. The fire is visible. As we reach the switchback, it's less than a quarter mile from us, creeping through the grass and shrubs on the hillside. The flames are quick, but not tall. A few leap up and singe low-hanging pine branches, but the surface fire has yet to take hold of the trees. We turn our backs on it and continue on the downward path. Pat keeps glancing back over her shoulder at me, her boyfriend, or the fire. I swivel my head every hundred yards. The fire is coming fast. We'll reach the water before it does, but only barely. To my left, the hillside rears up steeply, nearly a wall. It falls away on the right into the river. A two-foot-wide stream, bubbling past mossy lumps of granite that detached themselves from the mountain ages ago. Pat reaches the water, and I am right on her heels. She turns up to help Adam off my back, and her face goes white. I turn. The fire is nearly upon us, and now I hear it sound, like a freight train barreling down on us. The heat hasn't touched us yet. It's coming down the slope at us, and the heat is rising, so we barely feel its presence. It's two hundred feet away. The flames leap up and catch the branches of a beetle-killed lodgepole. A lick of fire runs up it, a bright tattoo against the dark, rough bark. The pine catches with a whoosh. Pat screams as the shock of ignition hits us. We stumble back into the stream, and three more trees explode into flame. A moment later, the fire leaps across to a branch overhanging from a pine on the opposite side of the stream. I can feel the heat now as it begins to crown. The surface fire flames stand nearly as tall as Adam, almost to my shoulders. It's too late to run, and even if I had more than a single Pulaski, too late for us to dig. We'll have to shelter. The stream curves back behind us, and there's a wide sandy bank on the far side. None of the pines come down to the water there, though it's littered with pine cones and dead needles. Hurry, I say, and lead the hikers to the opposite shore. I reach for my emergency pack. I toss aside most of the gear and throw the two signal flares into the water so they won't explode when the fire reaches us. Then I remove the tightly rolled aluminum and silica shelter. It's meant for one, big enough for two in a pinch but not for three. Certainly, not when an eight-foot metal centaur is one of the three. Unfold it. You stand on the edge of the sheet, and then drop it to the ground. Hold it tight against the dirt. It's going to burn over, I warn, handing Pat the shelter. It'll be tight, but you can both make it. What about you? Pat asks. It's a robot. It'll be fine, Adam says. He moved to the center of the sandbar. Come on, Pat. It's getting close. 
Pat doesn't answer. She stares into my ocular receptors, and I can feel her looking at me. Whatever there is of me inside this metal monstrosity. You're not a robot, are you? I'll be fine, I say. Go. They climb inside, collapsing into a shiny silver boulder on the sandbar. I pull out my Pulaski. We are protected on two sides by water, but I might be able to dig a ditch on the landward side to keep back the flames. I move forward, and the fire reaches me. A wall of flame suddenly roars up in front of me. I stumble back, my arms thrown up to protect my head instinctively, even though nothing important lives there. The trees around me stand against the flame for moments before transforming to torches. Smoke whirls skyward, pulled up by the intense heat. The haze turns to thick smoke, closing in like a choking cloud lit bright orange from the flames beneath. It's like being on a long road tunnel with the orange lights they used to use. It's like descending into hell. The fire rushes forward. It laps up the fallen pine needles. The grasses vaporize the instant the flames hit them. A chipmunk races forward out of the flame, its hindquarters charred, and throws itself into the water. A moment later, a mule deer, screaming with a sound I've never heard before, bare skin scorched and smoking, follows. The deer crashes into the stream, thrashes, and falls still. There's nowhere to run. The fire is too fast. I back into the middle of the sandbar, near but not too close to the sheltering hikers. If I should be overcome, I do not want to fall on them. Tongues of fire lash out toward our sandbar. I am unable to move. I thought I had lost fear along with my body, but this goes beyond mere stimulus response. The nearest flames dart up and fall back, starving for lack of fuel on the sandy beach. The rest of the fire swirls past along the shore. Pounding waves of heat assail me. A nearby tree cracks and explodes from the heat. My internal diagnostics send up fifty warnings. My body is fire-resistant, not fireproof. The river offers no escape. The shallow rushing water cannot protect me against the heat. Pain, artificially induced though it may be, feeds my fears. I can see nothing beyond the flames. Nothing above me but black smoke, lit hellish red by the flames below. The noise of the flames is all I can hear. The urge to run is strong, so strong. It's the same fear that made me volunteer for this experiment, just to give me a chance at escaping my prison cell. It's fear that locked me in this body, and fear that keeps me alive without hope. I can't stand being trapped. I want to fight, but there's nothing I can do, so I clutch my Pulaski in my hand. The inferno rages around me. It's been five minutes, and there's no end to the flames. My internal chronometer won't stop ticking, so I'm keenly aware of the passage of time. The pain fades to a dull roar. Maybe my underlying programming has realized I can't avoid the heat. The grasses are gone. The pine needles are ash. Some of the pine cones are still burning black lumps like charcoal in a backyard grill. 
The water beyond me hisses and sizzles as falling branches and embers drop from the burning canopy into its depths. I've seen the destruction fire leaves in its wake before, but never stood in its midst as it works. A creaking noise breaks my reverie. To my left, a fifty-foot-tall burning pine groans and shivers. It leans forward and starts to fall. Alarms go off inside my head, blaring warnings. The tree begins to topple right at me. Nothing stands in its way. It will come down on me and crush my brain case, crumpling my chassis like a small car under a semi-truck. It will smash my circuits and synapses to dust, obliterating whatever it is I have become. I won't even feel it. My processing center will be destroyed before the rest of my body takes damage. I turn off the alarms. The sensor suite is still running, calculating, as the tree falls toward me and toward the fire shelter at my back. The kids are completely unaware inside their silver shelter. I don't even know whether they are alive or if the heat and smoke have overcome them, but a burning tree will settle that. There's no time to tell them to run, and abandoning the shelter would be their death. I call up my tree-felling subroutine, and it floods me with data. I know how the tree will fall, down to the inch. The algorithm shows me all the vectors and forces, and hiding in the data is a course of action. I might save them, but I will lose my chance at achieving oblivion. I may never get another. I am content in this moment, knowing that at last my meaningless existence will be at an end. No more experiments. No more fires. No more me. No more. No safeguards stopping me this time. I'm not taking any deliberate action. I'm just letting the fire do what it does best. Destroy everything in its path. The hikers may be dead already. No one can blame me for not saving them from this hell. All I have to do is stand still. All I have to do to ease my own suffering is condemn someone else. I did that once, and the joke was on me when I was the one who woke up in a cyborg. I lunge forward hands splayed out on my Pulaski and tilting the tool sharply so the right end is a foot higher than the left. I catch the falling trunk against the wooden handle, a glancing blow. The impact shakes me and shoves me backward. My claws scrabble and sink in the soft sand. My arms creak as a dozen strain gauges I forgot having all scream warnings at me. The tree crashes down, tossing me aside like a leaf, but my work is done. The trunk falls inches from the precious silvery lump. Over the roar of the flames, I can hear the exclamation, not the words, just the terror. Stay where you are, I shout and hope they hear me. 
the foil rips and pulls in the gale force winds, but I cannot tell if there's movement from inside or not. The trunk is still burning. I hack at it with my Pulaski, delighting in the feel of the tool sliding in my hands as I lop off the branches and toss them, flaming, into the river. Each swing slices deep as my tree-felling subroutine tells me just how to angle the Pulaski's sharp axe blade. Then I attack the shorn, blackened pine corpse. My arms pack a punch. I chop off a twelve-foot section of trunk and with some effort roll it away. My sensors report the heat to my brain as pain screaming at me, but I don't care because I'm finally doing something to defy the flames. This fire is enormous, far beyond my ability to fight. I take savage joy in defying it, in fighting, in taking lives into my hands. My body is powerful, purposeful. I can look into the depths of hell and force hell to blink. I am alive, not as a human or as a sapling lives. I am fire, a force of nature, and I cannot be stopped. The trunk section smolders safely distant from the shelter. I lower my Pulaski and gaze into the wall of flames whirling just beyond our little island of safety. My internal alarms shriek in my head, warning me I am facing temperatures far too hot for my body. The wonky servo in my rear leg double fires, making my leg twitch, and then shuts down altogether. The flames roar defiance, and I roar back. I can almost smell the smoke. And then the fire's passed. I've survived the burnover. I stare in its wake. The flame wall moves on down the river valley. Trees and patches of ground still smolder. Little patches of flame fighting a rear guard action as the main force moves on. Two pines lean dangerously far over. The ground is dark with ash. The river beside me is choked with half-burnt branches and clumps of ash. Something dead floats by. My wildlife subroutine insists the fox, but all I see is a lump of charred flesh flaking away from white bones. I have lost my best opportunity to end myself, and I have been through the fire, and I remain. It is as if someone opened up my cell door, and I refused to step through. Yet, I find myself content. I lean my head back. Overhead, the smoke begins to thin. I catch a glimpse of blue sky overhead. You can come out, I call, and the kids emerge like saplings sprouting from the ashes. Adam's still shaking. Pat seems beyond fear. Their clothing clings to their sweaty bodies. Their hair is matted to their skulls. Their lips cracked. They gaze at the world around us. I have given them this moment. No human could have stood between them and death the way my metal body did. Adam hobbles toward the ash-laden stream. 
Ah, but I'm dying for water. He crouches. Wait, I say, and find the canteen of water from my emergency supplies. I give it to Pat, who drinks. She makes a face. So hot, she says, and then hands it to Adam. I'll radio for help, I say, and realize I probably should have done that before we became trapped. I hadn't thought of it. A good sign to quell my nagging worries. I am still human, despite my form. Despite everything this body has been programmed with. The kids don't object, so I cycle through frequencies until I find the right one. A helicopter is already in the area, waiting for word of Governor Walls's boy. They spot us quickly once I describe our location. We'll have to hike a quarter mile upstream to a place they can land, but that's all. I relay word to the hikers, then change frequencies and find Captain Ehring. He's shocked at my report. You'll need a full diagnostic and repair. Evacuate with the hikers. How's the line? We're holding, he says, a grim note in his voice. This is going to be a bad one. Containment is days out. I check my diagnostics. My left rear leg is nearly useless, but I can limp along on the other three. My batteries are still nearly full. The weight of the Pulaski in my hands feels just right. With your permission, I'll be back on the line in two hours, I say. Ehring pauses. You're sure, NK-7? We don't leave till the job's done, I say. Hold the line for me. NK-7YIV signing off. I pull up a maintenance program I've never bothered to use and adjust the power going to each of my legs, compensating for my damaged limb. I've got a long walk ahead of me, and a hard day of fighting fire. I can't wait. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And there you go. Huge, thank you. Kiddy, thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. And Ralph, fantastic lad. Absolute fantastic. So that is today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Sorry, it's a little bit late for Patreon subscribers there. Just lots going on. The father-in-law fell down the stairs and broke his leg and ended up in a pretty bad way, to be honest. So we've been all a little bit higgledy-piggledy and running around different, visiting and all things so uh, apologies next couple of weeks are a little bit scatty for us but anyway look after yourselves take good care and i will see you soon good night from me this presentation has been brought to you by the district of wonders network dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction you can learn more about the district of wonders and their many literary productions at their website www.districtofwonders.com thank you for listening
get out much I've barely left the ground I'm tuning in to your transmissions I'm a hooning, waiting to be found And I'm building rockets I'm pointing them to the moon But the work is going slowly It won't get to you anytime soon Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I wanna talk to you time I get my say, I might already be on to you and on my way, but you're so far from here, and at best I'm moving slow, so I'm waiting on your call at home with nowhere to go, can you reach me, is my signal getting through, turn on your radio, I wanna talk to you, I wanna talk to you. Myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. 